before we continue in our worship to the preaching of God's word, I invite you first to join me in a prayer of confession. Let's pray together. Gracious Father, we come to you this morning to confess our great need moment by moment for you to give us capacity to know you, to worship you, to adore you, to exalt your name. We are frail in and out of our own strength. We have no capacity to worship you rightly. You have called us to yourself. You have ransomed us from death to life. You have given us the gift of the indwelling Holy Spirit. Presently, we drop residing with your people in fullness. Yet, we struggle with sin. And so you teach us to confess. You teach us to be a people of confession that we are aware of our frailty. At least we walk in arrogance. At least we uh, lose our power over the flesh granted to us moment by moment by the indwelling spirit. So we come to confess our great need. For you. We come to confess our weakness and ask that you would help us to know you more fully, that you would take your word and instruct us that we might worship you well, that we might be a reflection of your glory, that we might edify one another and treat one another with koinonia, sweet fellowship that is true only in Christ, and that our light might shine into a lost and darkened world. We ask these things in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, this morning we're going to return to the book of Acts and we'll beginning we'll begin to delve into chapter 19. We'll be looking at chapter 19, verses 1 through 7. And the title of this morning's message is The Incorporation of John's Disciples into the Church, that being John the Baptist. So look there with me and we'll look uh, we'll read through the first seven verses. Now it happened while Apollos was in Corinth. Paul passed through the upper country and came to Ephesus and found some disciples. And he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said to him, no, we have not even heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, and to what then were you baptized? And they said, into the baptism of John. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in him who was coming after him. That is in Jesus. And when they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid hands on him, uh, laid hands upon them, the Holy Spirit came on them and they began speaking with tongues and prophesying. And there were in all about 12 men. Now, Leading up to this, uh, these verses here in chapter 19, uh, and, and uh, as we worked our way up through chapter 18, we were constantly reminding ourselves that Acts is a book of transition. And that's important for us to know here because when we think about Acts being a book of transition, at the heart of that is this reality that doctrine is foundation. And so we we're reminding ourselves not to found our doctrine on a book of transition. Do we find true doctrine there? Yes. Is it complete and full? No, because there's a, it's a book of transition. It's telling the history of the church at a pivotal time in history when the church is moving from the old covenant into the new covenant. And there are transitional aspects in that particular time that are unique to that particular time. Are there aspects that we see recorded in Acts that are eternal and full for the church from beginning to end? Yes, there are. But are there transitional aspects? Yes. And we ran into a few of them in chapter 18. We found Paul in transition, right? We also found another um, Hellenistic Jew, Apollos, in transition. I believe those two were kind of building us up for this big transition right here. We're going to find uh, some Gentiles there in Ephesus. And they too are in transition, for they were followers of John and well, uh, John the Baptist. And we'll look at that. But sound doctrine is central to the health of the church. 
And that's been our, our pattern here. It's nothing that we came up with ourselves. We've just looked back through scripture and through church history. And the reality is this. If you ground the body of Christ in sound doctrine, if you equip the saints with sound doctrine, they will be compelled by the word of God to go forth and do the work of ministry. So it's not my job to go to you forth or, or prod you this way or, or or classify you and, and, and categorize you and place you in this group that I think you should be in for this particular ministry. No, you're gifted by the Holy Spirit. And the Spirit of God takes the Word of God and compels you to go forth. My role, and not mine alone, but my role in part with other men, is to equip you. And ladies, when you have time together, older ladies, mature ladies in the faith, you would equip the young. Likewise for the men when we're gathered separately. Corporately, there's men in this church that have a role along with me, and that is to equip you to do the ministry of the gospel. So as we think about that, we think about um, looking at the books as, as we should. Not normative for Christian doctrine, but Christian doctrine in transition. There's transitional aspects here to the book of Acts. And by the way, if they were not, then we have to pick and choose, right? Because everything we find in Acts, if, it's, if, that's, if that's the norm, if Acts is the norm for Christian doctrine from the beginning to end, then we're going to have to pick and choose, right? Because are you all going to take Nazarite vows? Not everybody's head is as nice and beautiful as mine. You can't all shave your head. And carry your hair around for a while until you can make a vow and make, and make an offering somewhere, right? You're going to do that? We have to think about that. No, this is transition. If it were not, we got some decisions to make. If this book is not a transitional book, if it's the norm for theology, then we have some theological problems because signs and miracles become normative. Open revelation becomes normative. Apostolic office becomes normative and ongoing. All is in play. If the book of Acts, is, but it's not. This is a transitional period. The old covenant is fading away and we're seeing that in space and time. And the spirit of God has come now fully at Pentecost on his church. Has the spirit of God always been present with his people from beginning to end? Yes, that is true. But now in history, now and here is recorded in space and time. The spirit of God has come now fully indwelling all believers there at Pentecost. And the old covenant, as the book of Hebrews tells us, is fading away. And the new, and the new covenant is being established in Christ. And that establishment is marked off uniquely in history with the coming of the Holy Spirit on all His people in complete fullness. We see that happen at Pentecost there in Acts chapter 2. Now, as we look forward, we're going to see that there's a little mini, actually there's a little mini Pentecost coming along. And we're going to run into one right here. And we've seen a little mini Pentecost before, after Acts 2. And I believe we mentioned it in our Bible study this morning. Uh, I believe it was, uh, there was some talk of it. But after Acts 2, there was another little mini Pentecost. Do you remember what it was? We've seen a couple. The Samaritans, you remember Acts chapter 8? Remember the Samaritans? We'll look at them. We'll talk about them a little later. Do you remember Cornelius? Yes. Okay. And to kick off the book of Acts, let me take you back. As we kick off the book of Acts, what, what's the theology? The gospel is going now, right? It's going to the nations. So we had, we had pockets as it's revealed to us. What were we? What, what do we see there? Uh, beginning of, of Acts in chapter 1. The gospel is going to from Jerusalem and it's going to spread to the ends of the earth. Give me the sequence. Judea, Samaria, ends of the earth. And we got a little glimpse of that with the Ethiopian eunuch. But now we see those transitions take place. We've seen it move to Judea. We've seen it move to Samaria. And now here, you're going to see it move to the ends of the earth. So here's another little ripple, if you will, mini Pentecost that we're going to catch here. And it takes us back to chapter 1, and we see the progression. 
Judea, uh, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, ends of the earth. Okay? So I'm a little ahead of myself there, but that's what we're looking at. In that, also, I believe I need to make note up front. And we've, we've talked at length about this being a transitional book, but, but uh, that's not always viewed that way. And that, again, there's theological problems, and we run into one right here. And I believe Paul and Apollos in transition have kind of built us up to this point because I told you then that can cause problems if we don't see it as transitional. Well, a problem has happened in modern evangelicalism with this text here. So we'll run into a point right here uh, where we see a problem. And it comes with the language here that's found in this text, receiving the Holy Spirit when one believed. So when um, Paul asked this question here, these disciples, and again, they're called disciples, but the scripture tells us that they're disciples of John the Baptist, so that clarifies something for us there. They're not disciples of Christ. These are not followers of Christ. They're followers of John the Baptist, much like Apollos. But in in, in verse 2, Paul asked them a question. This is a great question. And again, we'll get to this in more detail, but he asked him if they uh, received the Holy Spirit. And said, no, we haven't even heard of the uh, Holy Spirit. Really, uh, who has an ESV? Anybody have an ESV? Really, the best translation comes from the ESV. Somebody read that for me. It has an ESV. There, I'm sorry. On verse 2, the end of verse 2. Uh, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. Okay. Um where that, that comes saying we haven't even heard that there's a Holy Spirit, but we haven't even heard that the Spirit's been given yet is a real literal translation. Uh, 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 translation. That the Spirit's not been given. So, we'll, well, again, we'll talk about this. But certainly they, they're, they're, they're disciples of John the Baptist, so they've heard of the Holy Spirit. They're aware of the Holy Spirit. But they're not aware of the Holy Spirit arriving on the scene in humanity in space and time, in history. And again, we'll uh, build up to that. But when we find this language here in Scripture, this um, believing disciples and then not being aware of the Holy Spirit, and he asked in verse 3, then what? Then uh, into what were you baptized? They say they were baptized into John's baptism, one of repentance, anticipating. And then in verse 4, Paul says, John baptized with baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in him who was coming, that is Jesus. And when they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord. So we see we, there could be a view here of seeing these as genuine followers of Christ, disciples of Christ, believers of Christ, who receive the baptism of the Spirit sometime later, after their conversion. So a gap, if you will. Now, in the early 1900s, a theology arose on our continent, Pentecostalism. And they viewed this text, and others, but primarily this text, as a reason to see the Holy Spirit coming later, after conversion. Now, maybe there's a presence of the Spirit for all believers, but there's a blessing of the Spirit that comes later. And it comes through human effort. The person is to do something in order to try to have this, what's referred to as second blessing. The second blessing of the Holy Spirit in a more powerful way. And it's often marked then by the speaking in tongues and prophesying. Now, this arose again in the early 1900s here. Uh, later in the 60s, you heard um, language of charismatic. And that was, uh, there may be a few different theological nuances uh, to charismatic thought, but the same principle would apply here. There was a notion of a second blessing of the Holy Spirit that would come later after conversion and come by way of effort from the person making a spiritual effort, doing uh, religious acts to bring it about. Now, Pentecostalism... um, Old Foursquare, Church of God, primarily when it started early 1900s, and now there's a array of, of, of denominations that might fit into the charismatic movement. And again, that kind of built, uh, came along a little later in the 60s. But in our modern culture, this text has been taken 
And there's been theological problems that have arose from this text and how to understand it correctly. And it has, it has arisen in this Pentecostal movement, seeing the Holy Spirit as being given later or in a more fuller sense. And again, the key thing here being because of effort from the person to do something in and of their, in and of themselves to bring it about. Now, I want to say up front that the Spirit of God is given as a gift, a promise from Jesus Christ, and a promise from God the Father, and is given as a and He is given as a gift. Sorry, I called the Spirit of God it. Sorry, He is given as a gift to the believer at conversion in full now after Pentecost. And there is a transition in history. But at Pentecost, as the new covenant is established in Christ, from that that point forward until Christ returns for his church, the Spirit of God comes in full at conversion to every believer everywhere all the time. That's the doctrine that we find here. And that's the doctrine uh, that scripture gives us and points to from the Old Testament all the way back into Isaiah and Joel, talking about the promised spirit from the ministry of John the Baptist, anticipating the one who would come, who would uh, who would come and fill us with spirit and fire, that being Christ. And Christ promises from his earthly ministry that he would grant the comforter. The spirit of God to fully indwell his people residing within. Now, residing within us in fullness to glorify God and to quicken us to holiness and to convict us of sin. Not in some mystical sense. To grant us greater capacities to aggrandize ourselves. Or to falsely um, prophesy concerning God's will of other people's lives. Or to puff ourselves up. Or to give ourselves the notion that we have some kind of special anointing that other Christians do not have. That we have some kind of special power over other Christians that we can lord over them. And use selfishly. And use to glorify ourselves. And puff ourselves up. And use to abuse others. And used to mistreat and condemn others because they don't have enough faith to work and achieve that and desire that hard enough and do the physical or, or excuse me, do the spiritual work to earn it themselves. Now, this falsehood of the spirit coming as a later blessing has wreaked great havoc on the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's wreaked great havoc. It's been, it's been a great detriment. To many people. And as I say that, let me say this. I am not, please do not hear me saying that all people that might be found in these circles of Pentecostalism, of of um, uh, um, of, of the charismatic movements, however they may branch out, even into this to this day, I am not saying that there are not genuine blood-bought followers of Jesus Christ in these camps. I'm not saying that. That is far above my pay grade. Please do not hear that. What I am saying is this false doctrine of a second blessing of the Spirit that is marked with the speaking of tongues and prophesying is a falsehood. And it has harmed the church. And it has brought great detriment. It has brought brought great detriment to those who were within Christian circles and still lost and those who are genuine followers of Christ. It is harmful. And most of all, it defames the work of the triune God. Most of all, it minimizes the Holy Spirit and what the Holy Spirit does among His people. Most of all, it minimizes the promises of God and the promises of Christ. Most of all, it weakens the work of the Spirit, which is to quicken His people to holiness. And to quicken us. To 
conviction over our sins rather than to grant us foolish notions of what uh, we might prophesy over someone else or to condemn mothers for not having uh, enough uh, spiritual wherewithal to have the same kind of feeling that we have. That's bogus and it's harmful. And it defames the name of God, the Holy Spirit. So how's that for an introduction? All right, let's get to the text, right? Well, in this text, what we find here is disciples of John the Baptist. That's clarified for us later. We hear the word believers or believe, and we hear the word disciple, and sometimes our minds immediately go to uh, someone who's believing in Christ, and they're a disciple of Christ. But it clarifies for us here that they're disciples of John the Baptist. So we're in Ephesus, and Paul has made his way back to Ephesus. Paul has been to Jerusalem. Now, why did he go there? Because he's in transition, right? And the Apostle Paul, was, who has deep, deep, rich theology, still at this point, is struggling with those, dabbling back into those old traditions of Judaism. So it, it, happened, even, it even happened to Paul. And so what God did for him there at Corinth, when God came and he spoke to him in a vision clearly and spared him, he said, you know, Paul, you're going to get to, you're going to, get to preach and teach here, and then I ain't going to beat you. Many people are going to, I have many people in this city, they're going to come to Christ, and where many people have come to Christ in those other places, and you've got the tar beat out of you? It's not going to happen here. You Relax. And because God was so good to him, Paul made a vow. Now that's a that's a right out of Judaism. He went back to the old covenant. Because in his heart, in his upbringing, in his mind, that was the best way he could possibly honor God. But it's he's backtracking. Nonetheless. God is gracious to him, and, and, and Paul keeps his vow. And do that. In order to do that, he has to go all the way back to Jerusalem, cut his hair after the vow. We talked about the Nazarite vow. Cut his hair and go all the way back, and he's going to make an offering to Jerusalem. The Not the fullness of Christ, but that's all right. He's transitioning. So he's in Jerusalem. He goes to see the mother church there in Jerusalem. He goes to Presidian Antioch and he sees the church there, he sees the founding church there that has sent them out on their missionary endeavors. Um, and then he goes back through Asia Minor to check on all the other churches that were planted in his first missionary journey. That's going to bring him, uh, uh, that's going to bring him back west towards Ephesus. And he went through there just prior on his way to go make his vow, complete his vow in Jerusalem. And he had much success there in the synagogue. Prior in the synagogues, the other places he had been, there was a big spat, right? He would go preach in the synagogue and he would stir everything up and then the leaders of the synagogue would come after him. And they would stir up the city officials and he'd get, they would drag Paul out in the city square and they'd beat him to a pulp. So that was, that was the, 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 the pattern. There in Ephesus, he's met with a great welcome in the synagogue. They want to hear more, but he has to complete his vow. So he leaves uh, uh, Priscilla and Aquila there. They begin to teach and continue in the synagogue. The church there is sort of formed in the synagogue. And, ultimately, and, and then afterwards, it kind of moves to uh, uh, their church, their home. So they, they, uh, the church now is meeting in their home. They have there in Ephesus. Now Paul comes back through. He makes his way back. Paulus has been there. They've uh, helped Paulus come all the way to Christ. Paulus is now fully converted. And he's taking the gospel back to Corinth. Well, they had a lot of trouble. And Paulus will have great success in Corinth. Paulus is in Corinth. Paul's back in. And there he finds these disciples who have believed. They're in verse 2. Again, these are Gentiles. But they have been converted to John the Baptist's message. So they're, they're looking for the Messiah. They're aware of the Spirit. They're not aware that the Spirit is being given because they don't even know who the Messiah is. They just are waiting on Him to come. And so Paul here, I mean, he, he, he comes and he asks the perfect question here. And so here I want to bring your attention to the gospel investigation. 
He asked the perfect question in this context. And there in verse 2, he says, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Now, what we're going to find out is they believed in John the Baptist's message. But Paul checks them right away, doesn't he? So they, they, you know, there's a background. They've had some conversation. And then Paul checks them. He's going to find out if they know the gospel. Because if they have, if they know the gospel and they've repented and trusted Jesus Christ, the promised Messiah, what then has happened in their life? They have salvation. And what comes with salvation? Regeneration. Keep going. What happened? The Holy Spirit indwells them how? Partially? In fullness. So he checks them right away, doesn't he? I'm going to find out if they're believers. Because if they're believers, whoa, something happened in their life. And I know exactly what it is. The Holy Spirit indwells them. And they know it for sure. There's no doubt. If you're sitting here as a blood-bought believer in Jesus Christ, there's struggles with sin. There's doubt. There's anguish. There's fear. There's all the struggles of the flesh. But there's a resounding truth within you. God, the Holy Spirit, resides within you. And you know it. You know it as sure as you're sitting here. Every true believer does. That happens. It's a spiritual reality. It is a gift from God to every believer. And the Spirit indwells us in fullness. And we don't emotionally line up with that every single moment, every single day. But we, And Paul knew they would know it. So he asked them. You receive the Holy Spirit when you believe? So behind that is, what are you believing in? Who are you believing in? Where are you in this mix? Because we're in transition. And they said to him, no. We have not even heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. And the Greek translation, the, the, the best translation of the Greek here is, we don't even know that the Spirit has been given. If we weren't aware of this, that the Spirit has been given, they know of the Holy Spirit, certainly. Again, they were disciples of John, and John said clearly that the Spirit of God would come. The one who would come after him would Give them the Spirit of God with Matthew 3.11. I baptize you with water of repentance. This is John the Baptist here. And after me comes one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. They knew that. They just didn't know the Holy Spirit had been given. They didn't know that uh, Christ had come. They didn't know the details, if you will, about the Holy Spirit in context, in history, at that moment. They didn't know. Now, if they were Christians, they would have known, right? They would have known exactly what he was asking. And they would say, yep, but they're not quite there yet. They're still followers. <coughs> and so he continues there in verse 3. He said, into what then were you baptized? And they said, into John's baptism. Well, he's just filling out the perfect question here. Concerning salvation. If they knew, it would be because if they if they knew what he was talking about in being, in terms of being baptized in the Holy Spirit, they would know because the Spirit of God would have already indwelt them. Romans 8 9. You, however, are not in the realm of the flesh. This is talking about the true believer. Romans 8 9. You're not in the realm of the flesh, but you're in the realm of the spirit. If indeed the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, listen, they do not belong to Christ. They're outside the faith right now. And this is how Paul finds out. He's simply asking, uh, you know, the spirit of God. What about the spirit of God here? Do you receive the Holy Spirit? So if you're if you're uh, uh, all the all the Pentecostal language out there, all the charismatic language, out there, let me ask, have you received the spirit? So I want to ask you, if you receive the Spirit, you, if, you're, if you're a genuine blood-bought father of Jesus Christ, you better believe I have. Praise be to God. Yes, He has dipped down and saved this wretched sinner. He has snatched me from spiritual death and placed me in the spiritual life in His kingdom. And He has given me the gift of His Holy Spirit who indwells me forever. Praise be to God. Absolutely, I've received the Spirit. What do you prophesy and speak up to? Nope. No, no, that's over. No, no, no. I long to meet and where I don't know what to pray. I beg the Spirit to give me wisdom and capacity to cry out 
even if I can't utter a noble word in my own language. If all I can do is whimper, and I long for him to convict me of my sin, that I might know my Savior more. And I long for him to give me wisdom to walk in holiness because I have received the Spirit. So the question suggests that the possession of the Holy Spirit is a normal condition for all believers. Amen. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. That's a normal condition for all believers. Normal sign of salvation that the Spirit indwells you. So God gives the Spirit in full. The character of God is at stake here. Know that. It's the character of God. It's why I take time on this text, this text, and why I have to say the harsh things about a particular movement that fits into the evangelical community and our culture, other places too, but in our immediate culture. And where I say I, I, I don't I don't draw hard and fast lines on genuine salvation, but there are genuine there are people that are genuinely saved in these camps. But are they confused if they see this as a second blessing? Yes, they are. They're confused and it harms them and it harms others and it feeds the flesh. And most of all, it dishonors God. So what we see here is that it's normative for the spirit to come. Ezekiel 36, 26, 27. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. And I will remove from you the heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you. To follow my decrees. There you go. And to be careful to keep my laws. That comes at conversion. And the Spirit works within us. Not to puff ourselves up in the flesh, but to live holy. If you think this is a second blessing, or you have people, friends, or family that, that are amiss here, know this there is a mysticism out there with this. I just wander off into all kind of notions that come into their, their mind, fed by their flesh. And they'll prophesy all kinds of nonsense over people. And it becomes very mysterious and emotionally driven. And the text tells us something entirely different. It is very straightforward. The Holy Spirit comes in fullness of all believers at Pentecost. Now we have many ripples of that that are happening in transition here in space and time. But in fullness... For all believers. And then the Spirit of God moves us towards holiness. To walk in righteousness. To live holy. Not to wander off into uh, you know, a mystical way of thinking. And trying to prophesy about red trucks that feed our flesh, right? <laughs> or wander off on journeys. That their emotions are so, are, are, are so riddled with this falsehood. Where your mission field is right before you. You don't have to wander off on some journey to find where the Spirit is leading you. He's leading you. If you wake up the next day, He's leading you to, to walk in holiness right where He's put you. Go to work and be holy. But to say to Him, no. Literally, we don't know if the Holy Spirit's been given. And so He goes on there. And He says, in verse 3, Into what then were you baptized? And again, they say into John's baptism. Now that clears it up for us. All right? That's how we know. That clears it up. So they've been baptized into John the Baptist baptism. And what was his baptism? We found out about that in, in Matthew 3.11, right? He's baptizing them into repentance. All his followers, he's baptizing into repentance, anticipating his message of the coming Christ. So they're, they're taking on a baptism that says we're repenting in preparation to meet the one who is to come, to know of the one who is to come, the one who can cleanse us fully before God the Father, the promised Messiah. We're awaiting that promised Messiah that John the Baptist talked about. So the sovereign work of God is going on here and these disciples, these Gentiles. Now Paul picked them back up on his way back into Ephesus after he had been on a Nazarite, on a journey on a Nazarite vow. He should have been on, but he'd been on a journey on a Nazarite vow. Is God still good to him? Oh yeah, by the way, he comes in and encourages the church at Jerusalem. Gives it, fills them in, a little details. Goes back to Presidium Antioch, Antioch, fills them in, encourages them, encourages all the churches that's been playing on the first mission journey on the way back. 
And then as he's coming back into Ephesus because they've welcomed him the first time, they're waiting for him to come back. They can't wait to hear more from him. He just happens to run into these disciples of John, Gentiles, that have been uh, brought into the circle of John the Baptist ministry. Gentiles. And now he's going to tell them, isn't this glorious? In a transitional book, now he's going to tell them all this winding around. He's made a Nazarite vow. And all this process. And still the sovereignty of God is working through these folks. And all their frailties of transition. Hey, can I get an amen somewhere? Doesn't that happen to us? And here we are. And the Spirit of God has carved these guys out. Now 12 of them. He carved them out. And he's getting them ready to hear the gospel. And now he's asked the right question. He knows exactly what they need. He's getting them ready. They're looking for the promised Messiah. And that's exactly what happened. They find him. And God brings his man to these disciples of John the Baptist. And he gives them the gospel. Now, what he asked them? Have you received the Spirit? Now watch this. Pay attention. He asked them, have you received the Spirit? And they said, so he asked us, well, you know, what batches have you had? John. So he knows. They're prepared. Wonderful, praise God. Sovereignty of God at work here. But he knows they're outside of Christ. So what does he do? Does it, since they haven't received the Spirit, does he talk to them about the Spirit? Do we see that in the text? Pay attention to this. Do we see that in the text? What does he do? Notice this. Now I want you to see the gospel applied. Look there in verse 4. Did you receive the Spirit? Well, no. Well, let me tell you all about the second blessing of the Spirit. You need to get this right, boys. No, 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 no. He takes them right to the gospel. He knows they don't know God. He knows they don't know Christ yet. He takes them right to the gospel. So Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance. He's prepared you, gentlemen. He's prepared you. Telling the people to believe what? And a second blessing? And then you're going to be good? No, no, no. <clears throat> believe in him who is coming after him. That after him being John the Baptist. Believe in the one that he's preaching about. That's Jesus. And he makes it very clear right there. That is in Jesus. So what does he do with these people that have not yet received the Spirit? Well, you got to go home. Here's your homework. And you got to do this. And you got to do this. And you got to pray this way. And you got to you got you got to go through this little motion. You got to go through this little act of work. No, none of that. Let me tell you about Jesus. You haven't received the Spirit. Well, you need to know about Jesus because. When you hear about Jesus and his command for you to repent and believe on him as the only promised Messiah, the one who has made atonement for the sin debt of men. There, when you place your faith in him and him alone, there he takes his righteousness earned under the law, lived fully among fallen men. And there he takes his righteousness and puts it into your account because he died on the cross. To bear your, the sin debt of all who believe on him. Repent and believe on him. He would bear their sin debt. And the father would pour out his righteous wrath on his son. That all who believed on him might be spared. He would take upon them the sin debt that we owe. He would bear in his body. Atoning for us and imputing his righteousness into our account. This promised Messiah. You believe on him and him alone. This is the message that John the Baptist was teaching. This is the one who John the Baptist was talking about. Here's the Messiah. It's Jesus. They heard the message and they believed. And they didn't have to worry about teaching the Spirit because you know what happened when they believed? The Spirit of God indwelled them right there. Fully. That's what happened. He taught them about Christ. They didn't realize that they didn't know about the fullness of the coming of the Holy Spirit. They didn't realize that and it didn't matter because what they had to hear was Christ. And when they came to Christ, the Spirit was given as a gift because that's the promise of God the Father. That's the promise of Jesus in the earthly ministry. And that's exactly what happens to all believers. He's given as a gift immediately. That salvation, that conversion. No delay. No delay given as a second blessing. But listen. Leave the language here. Verse 5. They heard and they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. 
Now that's language saying they heard the gospel, they repented, and they believed. And the baptism in the name of the Lord Jesus here means that the Spirit of God came upon them and dwelt them fully right then. That's their baptism. They were baptism, they were baptized in Christ before they were baptized in John the Baptist, waiting in anticipation of the Savior who would come, the promised Messiah. Now they know that is Jesus. Uh, Paul is filled in the gaps for them, and immediately they were baptized into the baptism of, uh, of, of the Lord Jesus. That means that the Spirit of God. You think they knew that? Were they confused? No. And exactly what happened. Now, that brings us to verse 6. Remember, this is the gospel applied but it's applied in transition. So look at verse six. And when Paul had laid hands upon them, the Holy Spirit came on them and they began speaking with tongues and prophesying. Now they heard the gospel. They responded in repentance and Paul laid hands on them. And when he laid hands on them, they began to speak in tongues and prophesy. He said, well, wait a minute, brother John, what's this all about? Well, you're looking at a third wave of Pentecostalism right here. A biblical Pentecost. One Pentecost. And this is just a ripple effect of what happened at Pentecost in history, in space and time. Now, here's what is taking place. One, Paul lays his hands on them, so he identifies with them. They're what? Jews from Jerusalem? Gentiles from where? Go back. To Acts 1, what would this be categorized in the process? They're Gentiles from where? The ends of the earth. So this, this Jewish believer lays his hands on them with that's identification. The Spirit of God has indwelled them. They respond to the gospel and he lays his hands on them. And they prophesy then. They speak in tongues and they prophesy. And the prophesy here is probably an exalting of God, a praising of God in a known language. So they're prophesying of God in a tongue. You say, well, well that, that sounds sort of charismatic to me. Well, here's what's happening. Do you remember in Acts chapter 2 there in Jerusalem when the Spirit fell? And those... Believers there in Jerusalem were speaking in tongues and prophesying. And that was a marker, a spiritual sign of the Spirit coming in fullness, right? Do you remember the Samaritans? Remember Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria? Do you remember in Acts chapter 8 when we got to the Samaritans? And they believed, right? All that that happened, they believed. They even had Simon the sorcerer there, and he wanted the Holy Spirit, but he wanted it for fleshly endeavors, right? And what happened there? He was cursed and sent away. Now, that's something we need to keep in mind when we're talking about the second blessing and how people use that. For the fleshly desires and puff themselves up and lord themselves over, over others. Look back to Simon. And see what happened. We, the Spirit of God is not sold out. He's not, he's not, a, he's not a gun for hire. But what about the Samaritans that believe? Now, now, here's the question. Did the Spirit of God, be careful with this. Did the Spirit of God come upon them right away? They believe. Or was there a gap? Just like we see here. Was there a gap in space and time? Be careful. What happened? Come on, it was it's chapter 8. It wasn't that far ago. Did the, Spirit, did the Spirit come upon them right away at conversion? There's a little delay here. To what happened? What happened and why? Well, they waited for the apostles to get there, right? And then when the apostles got there, the apostles laid their hands upon them. And immediately the Spirit of God entered into them. And the sign of that was that they prophesied. They spoke in tongues and they prophesied. Now, what was happening there was now all of the, the Jews and, and now the Samaritans. And were they, were they lovey-dovey with one another? They hated each other, didn't they? they? Hated each other. Didn't the Jewish people, didn't the Jews think that the, that the Samaritans were beneath them? They were ridiculous, low life half breeds beneath them. Is that how they viewed it? Now, is that right? No. But is that how they viewed it? 
Now, are we, uh, okay, just a quick note here. Are we for space and time supposed to look back on them and just condemn them as horrible, evil people because they had a, a wrong thought about people concerning uh, uh, the, their ethnicity? Well, no, because we're hypocrites if we do that. It's a struggle with all of fallen man, so be careful. But was that wrong? Yes, it was wrong. But we shouldn't lord that over and think, you know, all these Jews that were just awful, so awful, how could they dare uh, degrade these people because of their ethnicity? Well, they were fallen and they did it. So what happens here? God waits till he gets them all together. And the Spirit falls upon the Samaritans just like it did upon the Jews in Jerusalem. So there is a little gap in space and time. But it's because God's bringing them all together because this is a book in transition. God's bringing them all together and then the Spirit is going to fall upon the Samaritans, the hated, low-life Samaritans. That the Jewish people looked down upon and thought, well, if the Spirit of God falls upon us, maybe God could save the Samaritans, but He's never going to save them in the same way He would save us because they can't even enter into the temple. They have to stay out in the grounds outside the outer realm there where, you know, the Samaritans hang out and the Gentiles somewhere beyond them. But we're a little more valuable to God. So now, so the, the old traditions die hard, don't they? Paul's still making vows. Old traditions die hard. He brings them all together. So the Jews will know that the Spirit of God indwells the Samaritans in the very same way the Spirit of God indwells the Jews. And they bring the apostles there. These are marked off. The disciples know they're marked off by God. And the rest of the, the Jewish believers have been marked off by God as indwelling, as the Spirit indwelled them. And they prophesied and spoke in tongues. And now they get to the Samaritans. And these people, these people hate each other. And then God brings them together. And brings the top men in. Top men in. They lay hands on them. And the very same thing happens. The Spirit of God falls on them. And they speak in tongues and prophesy. And he says, so what do they say? What do they say right there? About the Samaritans. And Acts say, whoa! The Spirit of God came upon them. How? Just the way he came upon us! And that's exactly why the time gap. That's second blessing. That's the evidence that what? It's one body, one church. Why are we coming to the table later today? We're coming as one body, one church. Why are we warned about taking the table, coming to the supper wrongly? What are we warned about there? Well, there could be a, a ripple effect of that, but at the baseline, it's what? Abusing one another, mistreating one another. Don't come to the table if you hold if you hold hatred in your heart to a brother. If you're treating a brother or sister wrongly, don't come to the table. Why? Because we're one in Christ. Because we're unified in Christ. Because there's one body. Many believers, one body. And that's what they're learning here. You're equal in Christ. Again, that's uh, I can't say this. Uh, that's why this uh, this uh, woke theology, this critical uh, 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 racism that that is uh, critical race theory that has permeated the church is a death nail. We can't stop start dividing ourselves up. Based on anything. Not ethnicity, not social status, not, not uh, uh, um, geographical location. Not, we're one body in Christ. It minimizes the work of Christ. And so he brought them here to know that from the very beginning, at, at this transitional stage in history, when the church now is going to be fully indwelled, and it's going out. It's going out to all corners of the earth. And every believer everywhere is going to be fully indwelled by the Holy Spirit. And they have to know there's no inequality, if you will, in the church. None. So they have to learn that lesson in a big way. And he learned it there with the Samaritans. And then we jump over to Cornelius in Acts chapter 10. And what happened? They get out to Cornelius. And then Peter goes and he has to, God has to speak to him in a vision. He has to drop down a very clear picture. And he says, you know, with, with, with the cloth and all the animals there. And he says, you know, Peter, kill and eat. There's unclean animals. And Peter says, well, no, Lord, I can't do that. There's unclean animals. Hey, traditions die hard. He's still struggling with the transition. Can't do that. You know, unclean meats never cross these lips. But the clear theological, spiritual picture is that the gospel's going out to the Gentiles. And what you saw is unclean. God makes clean. The gospel is going to the Gentiles. And it's not going through Judaism. It's going straight to them through faith in Jesus Christ. 
Straight to him. So he goes and he speaks to Cornelius and his whole family, his whole household comes to Christ. And then they're filled with the Holy Spirit and they prophesy and they speak in tongues, right? And what do they say? What happens there in that context? Well, the, well, the, well, the Jewish leaders say there with Cornelius and his household. Now, these are, that's full-on Gentiles, man. We're, we're pushing the edge of the earth now. That's full-on Gentiles. What do they say? The Spirit of God fell on them just like it fell on us. Why? Why? Because there's no diminishment of anyone in terms of being indwelled equally to the Spirit of God. No dimensions in that regard. We're all unified in Christ. We're all followers of Jesus Christ. We're all fully indwelt by the Holy Spirit. So now we fast forward to our brothers here, our Gentile brothers here in Ephesus. That's the capital there. That is Gentiles again. Now he finds these guys. And the Spirit of God falls on them. And the point man apostle for the Gentiles is right there with them. And he's as Jewish as you can get. The contrast in ethnicity would be like uh, me, Kendall, and Chris sitting out there in Kenya. We look a little different. We have a little different background. Or I said Kenya. I was thinking about Kenya. I met somebody from Kenya. I'm sorry. You're gone. I met somebody from Kenya the other day. Um, we stood out a little bit on the outside. There's absolutely no difference between us and our brothers and sisters there in Uganda. We were unified in Christ. There's absolutely no difference between Paul and these Gentiles here. And just so they'll know it, they prophesied and they spoke in tongues. And Paul recognized what? Oh! The Spirit of God just fell on these Gentiles at the end of the earth. Okay, just so you're theologically tracking here. Little mini, uh, just, just a little mini Pentecost right there. A little extra little wave of Pentecost right there. We just picked it up. To read. Why? Because we're hard-headed, right? It's hard for us to learn. So now we got three of them. Three phases. Now, what was told there in, in uh, uh, Acts 1.8, that was clear prophecy of God as now you see that come to its fruition right here. There's your end of the earth. And how are they marked off? By being filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesying and speaking in tongues. That was a sign that the Spirit of God had indwelled these Gentiles just like just like He indwelled the Jewish apostles and all other Jewish believers. And that was because there was to remind them in a very clear and unique and poignant way that there is unity in the church. We're all unified in Christ. Now, that was a temporary sign. Okay? That's no longer necessary. This is transitioning from the old covenant to the new covenant. That was a temporary sign, that being the speaking in tongues and the prophesying. And it was marked off each phase of Pentecost to go from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. And every phase they were marked off together. Jew, Gentile, unified in the very same way. And everybody involved would know, hey, the Spirit of God fell on every group there in the very same way. And that was a unique temporary sign of possessing the Spirit in a unique transitional period. By the way, right here, you're looking at the last time that happened. Never see it again. You know why? Because this was a temporary sign. Temporary. To mark everyone off as equal in Christ. It's done. It's done. That's the last we see of it. Now, What's the permanent manifestation? If we're all equal in Christ and the Spirit of God fully indwells us, well, what's permanent manifestation? Well, uh, Alexander McLaren gave us a, a little rundown here. Now, this is not all encompassing, but it, it, it's nice to think about. So, the permanent manifestations of the Holy Spirit are this holiness. That's the foundation holiness. 
You don't know if the spirit, if you receive the spirit, if you have, then you desire holiness. That's what's left in your life. Holiness. You're not chasing after some tongue. You're not chasing after some capacity to prophesy something about red trucks. You're pursuing holiness. He continues on there. Consciousness of sonship. Now, I love that. Oh, does, we talked about our enemy. Does not great enemy want to tell us that, oh, you probably, you, you, the, the son of God doesn't even care about you. You're just a low life. You can't walk with God. You can't honor God. You're a horrible Christian. You think you're a Christian? You're a horrible Christian. But what is, what is central in the Spirit's work in, in, in our lives is a consciousness of sonship. We're sons, sonship and daughtership. We're sons and daughters of the one true God. Co-heirs with Christ. Now, does that puff us up in the flesh? No, that should humble us to no degree. That should move us along for holiness that we might worship Him rightly. Consciousness of sonship. I love that. God-directed longings. You can write that down. That was good. God-directed longings. That's what is permanent. That is a permanent manifestation of the indwelling spirit. God-directed longings. Oh my, hasn't it easy to long after things of this world? Isn't that easy? Oh my goodness, isn't it easy to long after things of the flesh? That's easy. You know what the Spirit of God is doing? If you're a Christian, the Spirit of God is moving every fiber of your soul to perpetually, continually long after things of God. God directed longings. And religious illuminations. That just simply, let me just boil that down. That just simply means the Spirit of God is always taking you to the Word of God. And teaching you to rightly divide it in its context. You don't have to be a road scholar to do that. The Spirit of God does. He's better than a road scholar. The Spirit of God does that in your life. You say, well, you know, I'm just a, I'm just a little old country boy out here in the middle of nowhere. He, you know, I just kick rocks down the road. Me too. <laughs> the Spirit of God indwells you, man. Dear sister, the Spirit of God indwells you. And you have God honoring longings. He will take you through Scripture and He will work you over and you will get it. Now, are we, are, are, do we have, you know, we have all this right. Do we have blind spots? Yes, we do. But we're longing to have them opened up and illuminated to us. We're walking in humility and we're loving God's Word and we're staying in it. And the Spirit of God is maturing us in the faith. And oh, we've got, ooh, we're going to go to the supper. Okay, bear with me. I'm going somewhere and it's going to a close. All right? Religious illumination. Here we go. And victory over the flesh. You see that? Victory over the flesh. That's what the Spirit of God does in you. Victory over the flesh. Know that and love that. These things will be obvious in disciples if the Spirit of God is not quenched within you. If you're here and you're a follower of Jesus Christ, the Spirit of God enjoys you. These, these, these manifestations will be obvious in your life unless you're quenching the Spirit. That's possible. So what do we do there? Long. Go in prayer, intimate prayer before your God and long not to quench the spirit. That you may have victory over the flesh. And so verse 7 goes on to us. You know, tells us there's about 12. This is a summation of kind of this little section here. So you know, 7, verse 7 is a part of that. There are about 12 men. This is what happened to them. That's the point. So believer's primary purpose here. Here's our application. A believer's primary purpose is to exalt God. That's our primary purpose. That's why this stuff is dangerous. That's why we have to we talk about this false doctrine because it's dangerous. It takes you off into fleshly desires. This second blessing. You roam after all kind of fleshly endeavors. And our goal is to honor God. To honor God is to rightly understand the work and the ministry and the purpose and the person of the Holy Spirit. And He doesn't come in parts. He doesn't segment Himself out. He comes in full. And this is how He manifests Himself in the believer all the time. So a wrong view of the person, the Godhead, does not exalt God. And God, the Holy Spirit, is the third person of the Godhead. A wrong view of God, the Holy Spirit, does not exalt God. Wrong view of the Spirit diminishes the work of the Spirit. So don't desire the Holy Spirit for fleshly. Don't do that. You know, you can quench the Spirit. The Spirit is given freely and fully by God for the glory of God. It's not for fleshly desires through human effort. All that will do is puff you up in pride. Give you a longing for fleshly power. And none of those things honor God. To minimize the truth of the Holy Spirit is to dishonor God. Remember that. Pray over that. 
as you long to walk in unison with the brothers empowered by the Spirit. Minimize the truth of the Holy Spirit is an affront, the grace of God giving us the Spirit as His gift. It's a gift that cannot be obtained through human means. The Spirit of God is a gift of God. It's given to you at the truth. Let's pray. Gracious God, we thank you for this text. We ask you this morning that you would take your word and you would minister to us, that the Spirit of God would illuminate your truth to us, that we might walk in righteousness, that we might know you more fully. We ask that uh, you would help us to put these uh, uh, truths together in context here in this transitional book that oftentimes can be hard and confusing, but help us to see a consistency here, to see uh, a continual flow of what has transpired at Pentecost. A continued picture of the fact that you are unifying your church. Your church is unified in Christ. There are no segments of the body of Christ. We have different gifts. We are different. But we are all united in Christ. And here's a picture of that for us in Scripture. Please knit it deep in our hearts that we may love you and treasure you all the more. We thank you and we praise you in Christ's name. Amen.